There was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zephu, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Paniah. Paniah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day for Elkanah came, sorry, for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Phinehas, and to her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean to you more than ten sons? When they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. She kept on praying to the Lord, and Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying out here my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went on her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and went back to their home at Ramah. And Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of the time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Let's pray together. Jesus, this season, we're putting attention upon your birth, your arrival. We want to tell you we're so grateful that you've come. But we're also asking in these moments that you would come again. You're always here, but what we mean is that you would come with unusual power. 
that you would come and be present, that you would come and bring conviction to our hearts, that you would come and open our blinded eyes, that we would see you in a new way, every single person here today. Please do it and receive all glory from our hearts that are stirred by a fresh vision of the one who was born for us, for our lives, for our salvation. So please send your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wanted something so badly, so badly, that it hurt just to even want it? Have you ever longed for something so intensely that it would almost haunt you, always on your mind, always in your heart, always in your prayers? Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was a personal dream that you carried around with you. Or maybe it was the end of an illness that you were waiting for. In today's passage from the book of 1 Samuel, we meet someone who felt like that. As someone who felt like maybe what you feel a little bit like today. It's a story full of aches and agony and advent. You know that word that the church traditionally uses to describe the coming or the arrival of God. The arrival of God right in the middle of our weariness, our neediness, our pain. Are you ready? Are you ready for God to show up? Are you ready? Are you ready for his advent? As the narrative unfolds this story, one thing becomes clear. The people of Israel in this time were an absolute mess. Do you know how the book of Judges describes this period in their history? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time of moral anarchy, political instability, military vulnerability, and spiritual obstinacy. Israel's leadership was a mess too. There were no kings in Israel at this time, but there were priests, and we meet three of them here in verse 3, Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And let me tell you a little bit about these latter two characters. Hophni and Phinehas, they don't figure centrally into today's story, but we know from the next chapter in 1 Samuel that they're the priests that are actually the ones in charge of this sanctuary in Shiloh. We also learn that they are terribly corrupt. They would steal from the offerings of the people that they would bring to God, sometimes even stealing by force. They would get drunk on the wine offered as part of worship, and then they would encourage other people to do the same, you know, for a more uninhibited spiritual experience. Which is why... When Eli, the priest, finds a woman weeping and praying in the sanctuary in verse 13, he assumes she's wasted. I mean, that would have been a pretty good guess. Apparently, that's how common it was. And speaking of an uninhibited, these two priests 
regularly had sex with the women who served in the sanctuary. They basically turned their staff into temple prostitutes. It was a total nightmare. These were the priests of the sanctuary. And the book of Samuel here spares no distressing detail about all these fools. And you know why? Why? You ever yell at the TV out of frustration? No, Olivia Pope, don't do it. He's not worth it. The storyteller's goal here is to get you to almost yell at the Bible in frustration. Can we get a new priest here? Can we get a new priest? Today's story is the beginning of God's answer to that cry, to that question. He's raising up a new priest. He's raising up a true priest. And he's doing it through an obscure woman from a small town in the hill country from the northern part of Israel a woman whose cheeks were probably raw, she'd been doing so much crying for so many years. You see, Hannah had no children. Infertility can be an excruciating experience emotionally. Many of you know that all too well. But to add insult to injury, her husband Elkanah apparently had taken a second wife named Panina, probably for the purpose of doing what Hannah could not, namely bearing children, which is what Panina did. She had many children, and we know that from verse 2 and 4, she had both boys and girls, and she made sure that Hannah noticed. We're told in verse 6, Hannah's rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. As you might imagine, the family's annual trip to Shiloh was especially painful. Why? Well, there was that part after the ceremonial sacrifice, during the festival meal when the whole family would be gathered around, when portions of food were given to each family member one by one, symbolizing the Lord's acceptance blessing and favor, his love. And where serving after serving would be doled out to Panina and her kids, here you go, a serving for you, and another one 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 for you, and here you go, Hannah. She would never feel so alone and childless. Until one day, it was just too much to bear. We're told in verse 9, bursting into tears, Hannah prayed and made a vow, Lord Almighty, if you give me a son, I promise I'll give him back to you. And God responded to her prayer. In the course of time, after countless years of heartache, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son whom she named Samuel. After Samuel was three years old, she fulfilled her vow. Hannah dedicated Samuel to God's service in Shiloh. 
which meant he lived there apart from his family. And he would be trained, and he would be equipped, and he would be raised as a, guess what, a priest. A priest, a new priest at last. The true priest that we'd been searching for. You better believe Hannah celebrates. She erupts in song, a song that's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And here's what's incredible. After all she's been through, it would have been totally acceptable, understandable, if she'd simply written a song about her son. You know, his smile is so cute, his curls, his eyes, I love him, right? Whatever it might be, but no. When you look at the song that she wrote, you notice her language starts to soar. She starts to sing about how God is going to renew the world. With words like these, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. She also sings about a coming king who would also be priest. God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It's incredible. Hannah is singing about her son, yes, but she's also starting to sing about another son who was yet to come. She's singing about the arrival of a son which her own son's arrival foreshadowed. You see, she was singing about the true priest, the ultimate priest, the greater Samuel, whose name would be Jesus. Friends, here's something to remember this Christmas. Jesus was born to be our priest. In the New Testament, Hebrews 6 verse 20 tells us that Jesus has become a high priest forever. And you know, it's probably not an accident that the song that Mary sings in Luke 1 sounds kind of like a remix of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, each of them being inspired by the birth of their priestly sons. Jesus was born to serve as the priest of you and me. But what does that even mean? The priest of you and me? Well, it means three things. First of all, it means that Jesus was born to offer you sympathy. Jesus was born to offer you sympathy. One thing that I love about this story is how many sad words there are and that are used to describe Hannah. We're told she wept and would not eat in verse 7. Why are you weeping? Why are you downhearted? Her husband asks in verse 8. Verse 10, she tells us, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. She prays about her misery in verse 11. She tells Eli she's deeply troubled in verse 15. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord, she explains. I've been praying out of my great anguish and grief. Isn't that honesty sort of refreshing? These words, uh, they serve as this invitation 
for you and me to bring our true, broken selves to God. Are sad words part of your vocabulary of faith? Will you bring those kinds of words to God as well? Uh, Hannah's anguish is received by Eli. He listens to her. But he badly misunderstands her, doesn't he? He thinks she's drunk. The best that Hannah gets that day is a deeply flawed priest. Her son Samuel would be a better priest, a good priest, but Jesus is our perfect priest. He offers perfect sympathy. This is what the book of Hebrews chapter 4.15 tells us about him. We do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to sympathize, uh, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus offers us perfect priestly sympathy. He doesn't scoff at any one of your weaknesses. You know that thing about you that you're embarrassed of? He's not embarrassed of you. Lately, I'm noticing how impatient I can get when my kids are being a little bit whiny. Okay, a lot of bit whiny. Here's good news. God ain't like me. He never rolls his eyes at any of your whininess. Jesus loves you when you pour out to him all of your fears, your frustrations, your disappointments, your tears. Will you bring all the saddest and most broken places in your hearts and lives to him? For Hannah, it was her inability to have children. What is it for you? Two weeks ago, some of us got together for our monthly engine room prayer meeting, and we decided to focus on the holidays, specifically the ways that the holidays aren't always so holly jolly. Sometimes they're the hardest time of year. Maybe some of you are feeling that today. And we started the night by anonymously writing on note cards some of the things that are actually on our hearts. Uh, what are things that are making you anxious or fearful or sad? And here's what some people wrote that night. Feeling tired after a long year. Lonely. Loss of loved ones. Getting old and aging. No clear purpose or direction in life. Fear that I'm not good enough to anyone. Concerned about my father who's still in pain from fighting through cancer. Money anxiety. Sad that our family already has conflict leading into the holidays. Want to be generous but financially burdened. Anxiety about lack of direction in my life. Lack of purpose. I wonder if any of these resonate with you. If you can identify with any of them. Would you bring words like these to Jesus your priest? Are you anxious about dysfunctionality in your family? Jesus sympathizes with you. Are you one who struggles with depression this time of year? Jesus sympathizes with you. Do you know? Does Christmas and all the gift giving 
feel like it puts a spotlight on just how broke you are. Jesus sympathizes with you because he's not a stranger to suffering. He was born as a real human, like Samuel, like you, like me. And he experienced heartache, like Hannah, like you, like me. See, this is the mystery of Advent. This is the glory of the Christmas story. That Jesus was born to offer priestly sympathy. Now, will you go to him? Secondly, Jesus was also born to pray for you. He was born to pray for you. One thing that stands out in this passage is that Hannah is surely a woman of prayer. There's a lot of asking before God. It's a dominant theme in this story. In fact, the Hebrew word for ask or petition is used four times, for example, in verses 27 and 28 alone. So you could actually translate those sentences like this. Listen, the Lord has granted me my petition, which I petitioned him. Therefore, I have petitioned him to the Lord. He is petitioned to the Lord. The author's making a point. There's a lot of asking, a lot of petitioning. But another thing stands out in this story is just how solitary, how alone Hannah is, even in the sanctuary. In fact, there's an absence of any priest praying, interceding on her behalf. And that's notable because it's the priest's job to pray for the people. Hannah would pray, but for the most part, she prays alone. Her son Samuel would be a better priest, a faithful intercessor, but Jesus alone is our perfect intercessor. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Listen, here's one of the greatest assurances that the gospel can give you. That if you have embraced Jesus by faith, Jesus is praying for you all the time. Jesus is praying for you, friends. Do you know that he's advocating on your behalf, always praying that God would honor his death, his sacrifice on your behalf so that you might receive continued forgiveness for all of your sins? Do you know that Jesus is praying that your faith will persevere? As Jesus told Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Praying the same thing for you and me. Do you know that Jesus is making our prayers acceptable to God? I mean, this is great. Jesus purifies our prayers. Even the ones that we ask with twisted motives, which for me are basically all my prayers, right? I mean, he, he re-prays our prayers to God. He's almost always saying, you know, Father, what Duke really meant was, you know, let me explain here. Purifying our prayers, making them acceptable, making them effectual. 
that God would actually respond to your cries. Do you know that if you are still believing the gospel today, it's because Jesus is praying for you? If you have resisted any temptation of any kind in the last week, it's because Jesus is praying for you, calling down the Holy Spirit upon you. If you love those who've hurt you without retaliation, very unusual. Or if you've given generously to those in need around you, beyond the self-centeredness, the natural selfishness of your heart. If you've done these things, then you need to see it as proof that Jesus is praying for you. Great English preacher Charles Spurgeon said this about the priestly praying ministry of Jesus. He said, the Lord Jesus, by his unceasing pleas, keeps all the powers of darkness in check and moves all the powers of light for our rescue. His prayers form an atmosphere of blessing in which we live and move. We do not know. We cannot begin to calculate the depths of our obligation to the ceaseless care of our unwearied intercessor. Think of it, Jesus always praying, never ceasing. Hallelujah. And what's the lesson of this passage with respect to prayer then? Yes, you should pray. Pray like Hannah. Pray with faith and expectation. Pray honestly and pour your heart out before the Lord. Yes, pray, with, pray without ceasing, as 1 Thessalonians 5.17 tells us. But listen here, the most important lesson in prayer from this passage is not that you should pray without ceasing, but that Jesus is praying for you without ceasing. And that's good news. Jesus was born to offer priestly sympathy he was born to offer priestly prayers for you. And thirdly and finally, Jesus was born to be a priestly sacrifice for you. After all, sacrifice was the Old Testament priest's main job. A priest was in charge of offering to God an animal like a, a, a goat or a lamb. We read about a bull in verse 25, which Hannah's family offered up to God in Shiloh. This animal that would serve as a substitute for the people. Because when you come to God, you can only come to him as a sinner, one who's saved by grace, who's needy of grace, who's banking on grace, but always a sinner. And so therefore, by faith, the people of God in this time always brought these animals before God, and they would sort of say, here's a representative of me. It's not me, obviously, but it's sort of me, spiritually, legally, represents me. And here we will kill it as just punishment, justice, for all that I deserve for my sins. Here's my substitute. Kill it, not me. By your mercy. And for my forgiveness. And this went on and on throughout the Old Testament period until one day. One day. As the New Testament explains it to us, Christ finally entered the scene and he came as a, a priest, yes. Yet not one who simply offered up sacrifices, 
but rather one who finally was the true priest, the ultimate priest, the greater Samuel, who wouldn't offer up a bull or a goat, but would offer up himself. Who wouldn't just give the blood of lambs, but would give his own blood. He'd be the one who would call himself the Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of the world. As Hebrews 9 says, Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. He entered heaven itself on the cross, now to appear for us in God's presence to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, a a priest's main job was to offer up atonement for the sins of his people, which is precisely what Jesus did some 33 years after he was born, when he was crucified on a cross, and when he died as our substitute, taking the judgment that you and I deserve. Someone says, judgment? Judgment? Atonement for what sins? Or someone says, why are you telling me about my sins? I'm hurting here. (laughs) What I need is, is, is sympathy for my wounds. I've got enough pain to deal with. And I've noticed this reaction in my own heart. I've noticed it, especially in seasons when you feel most in need of priestly sympathy when you're wounded and raw. And in times like that, what I've noticed, though, is that there are certain sins which I think we're most vulnerable to. Things you might be prone to overlook when you're most hurting. Things like self-pity. You know, nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody. Or self-righteousness. Believing that my suffering is better than yours, or at least you're not doing it right. Or resentment or bitterness because of the bad hand that I've been dealt, or ingratitude, ingratitude just blind to all the blessings that God has poured into my life. And then, of course, there are ways that we try to medicate ourselves, dulling the pain with sex, with power, with wine, with money. All these different lurking self-centered sins in our hearts, even as wounded people. But here's good news. That every single one of those sins are covered. Covered by the priestly sacrifice of Jesus. Every single one of them. As Hebrews 9 declares, Jesus has died as a ransom to set us free from our sins. You're forgiven. And where these sins have been forgiven, the book of Hebrews again reassures us, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. In other words, if you have Jesus, you can stop trying to be your own priest. If you have Jesus, you can stop trying to make sacrifice for your own sins. You can stop trying to cleanse your own conscience, your troubled conscience, with your physical appearance or your popularity or your career success or your social justice activism 
or religious activity, all these different things that we creatively and sometimes subconsciously use to atone for our guilt. But you can stop because, again, where there have been forgiveness of sins, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Listen, when Jesus cried out on the cross that his work of atonement was finished, he really meant it. It is finished. You can rest. Because you have a priest, you can rest because you have a priest. This is your Jesus. This is your high priest. Your priest who died for you. Your priest who prays for you. Your priest who sympathizes with you. Everybody longs for a priest like this. Don't you? And so here's the big question for you this Christmas. Who's going to be your priest? Who are you going to turn to? To play the role of priest. To seek and find perfect sympathy. Who are you going to lean on to advocate for you? To pray for you perfectly. And where are you going to turn to for atonement, for your guilt, for covering, for your shame, for life, for the death that you deserve? Who are you going to turn to? Will you turn to him, Jesus, your priest, who sympathizes with you, who prays for you, who died in your place? Dear friends, this Christmas, never forget, for unto us a priest has been born. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would come and even now priest over us. Pour out mercy and grace and help to those that are brokenhearted, those who need to be lifted up, those who need to see their sins for what it is, those who need to drink deeply from the lavish grace of the gospel. Every one of us needs you in every way. So come, Lord Jesus. Come, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.